The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's Culture Club time and I'm delighted that we're joined by one of our own on the show tonight. You all know Alison Curtis from Weekend Breakfast here on Today FM, Saturday and Sunday mornings. But we decided to take the opportunity to bring Alison in and give us all of her favourites. Thank you for joining us. Not at all. I hope I come across as kind of cultured tonight. <laughs> kind of cultured. We let the audience decide whether you are. I think, I think you're going to do very well with all of these choices. <laughs> there are some really good ones. And let's start with music. Now, we ask for first single you ever bought and you can't really remember, can you? I know, I can't remember at all. Like, I mean, music was part of the household growing up. More so, my mom had pretty good taste. My dad, we described it as elevator music, which was probably offensive to him. It was more instrumental. So as a kid, you just didn't, you weren't drawn to it. But mom loved like Roy Orbison and Elvis Presley and all that kind of stuff. And then when we were growing up, we liked, you know, Cyndi Lauper and we were Michael Jackson fans. But the first... What about your dad? He was he was just more instrumental, kind of the 60s loungy kind of stuff that I don't even know what it is anymore. I'd like to go back and investigate it a bit more, actually. But she liked the mainstream kind of artist. And then we liked as well the kind of mainstream ones. But the first album I fell in love with, because we all do this at the stage in our life where your music is your identifier. And I was like, I think I'll seem really cool if I like this band, was In Excess. But they'd been around for quite some time before I came across them. Kick was the album that I fell in love with. And I don't know, Matt, did you do this growing up? But like you wrote on like your pencil case, the band that you really liked or on your shoes. So people knew you were like... Or on your school bag. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we did with In Excess. And Kick was the album. And I still love it. I only listened to it like last month for the first time in a while. But it stands the test of time. I really loved it. Let's hear a little bit of New Sensation. Yeah, there are lots of great In Excess songs. I saw during the lockdown, I remember there was a brilliant Hutchins documentary, Michael Hutchins, yes. on. Did you know if you saw that? Because he was incredible charisma, but also a very, very sad story about, particularly after the time he was assaulted yeah. in Copenhagen, and the brain damage, which effectively dogged the rest of his life. It did. He never recovered from it properly. And it is so sad because it was an accident, but it's because he decided to not get attention for two or three days afterwards that led to the damage, the permanent damage. So he was incredibly talented. And that album had, you know, obviously we just heard New Sensation, but Never Tear Us Apart, all the kind of really, really big hits. And there was a producer called, or an engineer and manager, David Nichols, and he said in the book, official documentary about In Excess in 2005, that when he walked into studio to record this album with them, he just had a feeling that it was going to be big. And it was. Like, it was their most successful commercial album, for sure. And I remember seeing the album cover for the first time, and I remember seeing, like, all the videos for the first time, and I just loved it. And I, re- I really felt like it was a cool thing to like at the time as well. 
And might still well be. But what's your favourite album that you're going to nominate? This is really hard because you know that I did a music show in Today FM for like 10 years and gigs are really hard to pick as well because at one stage I was going to about two, like two a week. Um, But I have to go with Bruce Springsteen because I don't know where... I stop and my start of Bruce begins because at a time when I was really getting into music and buying my own albums, it was all very indie kind of stuff. But Bruce stood out like a sore thumb in my record collection, but I've always loved him. I don't remember when I first fell in love with him because I've always loved him. And Born to Run is an album that you're probably the same, Matt. Like there'd be albums that you really, really love and really love, but there you'd admit there's a couple times in these albums you'd fast forward a track or something like that. But with Born to Run, I love every single song on it. And it tells a really big epic landscape story of North America and I lo- I'd be drawn to that when it comes to literature when it comes to movies and music and it just tells an incredible story as well Let's hear the title track Will you go and see Bruce Springsteen when he's in Dublin for three nights, I think, in the RDS in May? May. Yes, of course. I've gone every time he's been in Ireland. And actually, even though I loved him when the first time I saw him was in Ireland, for years, 10, 15 years, I loved him in Canada. But I never saw him there. So it was when I first came here that I saw him. And that tour was incredible because they celebrated 30 years of the album in 2005. And we went to see him again at the RDS. And I stole a poster. The most iconic, one of the most iconic album covers is himself and Clarence Clement together. And you know the one where like Bruce has got the guitar, the Fender, and he's leaning against him. And I stole that as like being Canadian. I was like, this is really bad. But I stole it as I walked out and it had a rip in it. But years later, my husband taped it up and framed it for me. And we have it on one of our walls in the house. And I love it. I think it's brilliant. And it's a great album. It's amazing to think about that album in the sense as well that Bruce thought that was his last ditch attempt at like fame and breaking mainstream radio, which we obviously know mainstream he's done many times over since. But he put his heart and soul into that. And that song took him six months to perfect because he really wanted to get the wall of sound, the Phil Spector sound. And he went demented with it, like in 14 months in total for the whole album. But that song alone was six months because he was just trying to get sounds out of his head and onto, you know, into studio and recorded. And he talks about that time as being, he was quite tormented during that time because he had this sound, these sounds in his head that he couldn't get out or he couldn't get other people to understand, but he obviously did it. And whenever I'm like kind of down or a little bit annoyed or not in a great mood, uh, I throw that on and it instantly, I'm better, <laughs> better for it. <laughs> I can understand that. Okay, that's a great reason for loving the album as well. But a favourite band or artist, you mentioned that you are really... An indie chick, aren't you? <laughs> kind of. Well, no, I am. Yeah. And it's really pathetic. And I don't know what your children are like with your music taste, but my daughter's like, I don't like that. That's not Dua Lipa. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, my heart breaks that she doesn't like my stuff. But so that's why Do you Bruce... like Dua Lipa though. Well, I some of the stuff. Physical's a good track. I like that. But 
Uh, Pixies would be a band that have always been with me as well. And when I play them for her and she's 11, she's like, what is this garbage, basically? But I love them and I've always loved them. And I love just they have like a surf rock sound is what it's defined as. And they have that loud, quiet sound. So they could have a very quiet, melodic lyric and then they'll scream and the guitars will screech and I just love his sound and you know Come On Pilgrim was the first album they released in 1987 and even though they evolved they kind of stayed the same if that makes sense and they kind of kept their sound really strong and you know the jump off point was I loved Kim Deal was their bassist and she formed Breeders and The Last Splash was the name of my alternative music show that I had here for 10 years and so all of the artists within that band I loved all their solo projects as well and I just think they were great songs they really good fun, punchy songs. And again, I'll feel better when I listen to them. (laughs) Here comes your man. Is that arguably the most accessible Pixies track? Probably the best known one for sure. Um, is that considered culture now? Are you loving it? <laughs> I, I, I really like I'm not a big Pixies fan, well, way, but I do really like that track. I'm quite pathetic in that years ago I was offered a chance to interview Frank Black and I was on my way to a wedding and I turned around to do it. That's pretty pathetic. And another Did story... Did you manage to get to the wedding afterwards? Yes, we missed the, the important part, but we got to the afters. Um, another really embarrassing story is... Sorry, I, your husband was fine with that? He was you? okay, actually. Yeah, he was fine. We weren't married then, but he was fine with it. But years and years ago, um, MCD wanted to celebrate the fact that the Pixies were coming to Ireland. They'd reformed because they were together for a long time and then split. And then they were back with Kim. It was a big story. And I convinced... I was producing Ian Dempsey at the time. And I convinced him that we should go to Barcelona. MCD were looking after us to do this, to go to Barcelona back in the day to see them so I could report on how great they were. But Matt, this was complete insanity. I was already in Canada when all this was coming together for a holiday. So I had to fly back through Dublin, then to Madrid, then to Barcelona. This big thing. They were great. You know, Ian played along. It was all brilliant. And then we get to the spot where we're supposed to do the show and we couldn't get live on air for about 20 minutes. I'm like, after all of that. So I don't think, I don't even know if he remembers that, but he probably wouldn't forgive me for it. Sorry, today I'm paid for all of that. That was MCD. Back in the day, Back in the day. Remember we used to go to Japan and China and everything. Not on the last word, Alison. You might have done he that did. with the intensity breakfast show. The last word got sent maybe to I'm not even going to say where no, the no, faces no. that we got sent to. It, no. Okay, if it wasn't the Pixies, given that you give us some of your other choices that you would have gone for favourite bands or artists. Well, I've always loved I see, I'm worried that this is going to turn your audience because they're so indie, but I've always loved uh, Band Horses, I've always loved Pavement, Sonic Youth, all of those would be it's it's very much what I was doing when I first started in radio as well and Weezer and all those bands they would have been ones that I would have played a lot so I kind of like I love that library because it brings me back to my youth (laughs) Fair enough Best gig This is impossible Can you choose your best gig? Yes Have you done it? 
No. Okay. <laughs> but I could if I had to, but yes, go on. Okay. The National are a great band and they released an album called The Boxer, which I really love. People would know Fake Empire. That would actually be used a lot in sporting events, kind of as the bed underneath to the build up to the big game. We're going to play a bit of okay. it. Yeah. Okay. So they played at the Olympia Theatre on my birthday in 2007 and we had a box. And it was just the night itself was really nice. It was like, I felt like it was very special. I don't normally celebrate my birthday, but I was like, this is really nice. And the gig, were they were really, really on form that night. So I just remember that as going, floating out of it. You know, when you float out of, yeah. a, of a gig or a venue. And I was like, God, I really love that. And I really did. Let's hear a little bit, not from the Olympia gig, but this is a live version of Fake Empire. <laughs> Stay out super late tonight Picking apples, making pie Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us, we're half awake In a fake empire We're half awake In a fake empire Tiptoe through our shiny city with our diamond slippers on Do our gay ballet on us Bluebirds on our shoulders We're half awake In a fake empire They're back in Ireland again this year, aren't they? The yes. You'll be going to that? Yes. And the gigs do descend into chaos usually as well. A lot like more chaotic than what you just heard there, which also makes it fun. <laughs> Indoor though, because I'd mentioned this on the programme before, but they were in Dublin in Donnybrook about four years ago or so before Mm -hmm. the pandemic and open air. And I really wished it was indoors where I was seated to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. No, I love them. I think they're great. And he's a great front man, Matt, as well. So So give us other good gigs. So given that we did force you to nominate the best, have you other ones that you want to tell us? Flaming Lips were amazing at Vicker Street. Did you ever, did you go to them? No, no. but Flaming Lips can yeah. be brilliant. I can imagine they'd be terrific and live. Outdoor and indoor, but indoor they had the big balloons and it felt like a collective experience. So, you know, these huge balls come into the audience and I saw them in Canada actually at a very polite, quaint festival. But you're, everyone feels they're part of it because they're passing the ball around and he's, Wayne Coyne is an amazing front man as well. And recently I went to Pavement, speaking of reliving my youth, which was at Vicker Street as well and that was just at the end of last year and I was like oh my god my ears are ringing this is amazing I feel young again and that was great as well that's really good Okay well we're going to take a break in the Culture Club because it's not just music that we want to talk to Alison Curtis about presenter of Weekend Breakfast here on Saturday and Sunday mornings on Today FM Alison Curtis back with the rest of our Culture Club choices after we've had the traffic Very welcome back to the Culture Club. It's Alison Curtis who's with us today, presenter of Weekend Breakfast here on Today FM. So let's go to the non-musical choices that you've made. And let's start with movies. What in particular do you want to talk about? Well, movies are also a little bit like albums in the sense that they're tricky and you're like, just pick one, Alison. But, I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, so all of the Spielberg movies and E.T. and Star Wars, not the, the original three, not the three that followed, are really significant. And I love watching them as well. But I'd be a massive fan of Wes Anderson and his style of films and the Royal Tenenbaums. I don't know if you've seen that. I have. But it's a long time ago, so remind me about it. So it's Gene Hackman plays the patriarch of this dysfunctional family, Royal Tenenbaums. 
Tannenbaum. And he left his three children when they were younger. And then now he's trying to make his way back into their life. And it's a comedy. But there is, you know, there's tears as well. And there's a lot of good life lessons. But it's the way that Wes Anderson films. And it's just beautiful to look at. And the soundtrack is so perfect for it as well. But the characters are like so engaging and Chaz is the eldest uh, Well actually well, we, we do have a clip in which the Tannenbaum family are introduced All to right, the perfect. Royal had lived in the Lindbergh Palace Hotel for 22 years He was a prominent litigator until the mid 80s when he was disbarred and briefly imprisoned No one in his family had spoken to him in three years Richie had retired from professional tennis at 26. His last match had been widely discussed in the media. For the past year, he had been traveling alone on an ocean liner called the Côte d'Ivoire and had seen both poles, five oceans, the Amazon and the Nile. Eli was an assistant professor of English literature at Brooks College. The recent publication of his second novel had earned him a sudden, unexpected literary celebrity. Well, everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is, maybe he didn't? Margot was married to the writer and neurologist Raleigh Sinclair. She was known for her extreme secrecy. For example, none of the Tenenbaums knew she was a smoker, which she had been since the age of 12. Nor were they aware of her first marriage and divorce to a recording artist in Jamaica. She kept a private studio in Mockingbird Heights under the name Helen Scott. She had not completed a play in seven years. So that's the family, very dysfunctional. So they're basically all children, like child prodigies that grow up to be disappointing adults is basically what it is. That's how like Baldwin narrating it as well. And Gene Hackman actually had to be convinced to play the role because he just didn't quite understand it because it was one of Wes Anderson's first big films. And he did, and he went on to get a Golden Globe for it. But it's it's just... It's good viewing. And what a cast as well. Yeah. It was co-written by Owen Wilson. Yes, he's in it. Is it Eli Cash? And also Ben Stiller, Angelica Houston, Bill Murray, Danny yeah. Glover. Yeah. So Danny Glover plays Angelica, her love interest. And so the reason that Royal wants to move back into the house is he wants to break up that marriage. He's trying to win her back. So he pretends that he has cancer and he sets up in the, the top room in their house and the family eventually realises that he, he's lying. He just wants to worm his way back into the into their into their life. It was released in 2001, so I don't think we've got any spoilers here, but it's well worth No, I'm actually thinking of going back to actually rewatch that because I do remember really enjoying it at the time and it's so long ago now. Yeah, yeah. And all of his films, like Life Aquatic and what Wes Anderson does is he has an ensemble cast that he always goes to, which is Angelica Houston, Bill Murray and Gene Hackman's been in a, a few of them and Ray Fiennes as well. And they're just like, they're just so wonderful to watch. Like they're lovely to look at and they're a lot of fun to watch. Okay, what about... Here to get cultural now. Favourite play or theatre show or musical? What are you going to go for? You know, I was in drama when I was younger. I don't know if people know this about me. And you'd think I would be able to come up with plays that I like better because we studied them and we performed them. But I I really neglected theatre in the last few years. I really have. And every time I do go, I go, oh God, I love that. I should go more often. I should often. come more often. Yeah. We saw James Joyce's um, Women recently and I was like, why, did I, why do we not go? But one 
production that stayed in my mind, a theater production, was Les Mis. And everyone knows Les Miserables. They know the story. They know the music around it. But when we were in secondary school, we went to a version of it in Montreal, which was like three hours from where we lived. And I just remember it being like a big production, the first time I saw a big stage production. And that one was en français. And uh, we enjoyed it. And then we saw it a few years later in New York City in English, an English stage version of it. Huge production. And I did love the music. I love the music of it. And I thought I was a bit of a theater, like a history buff at the time as well. I was like, ask me anything about the French Revolution at the time. Not, don't ask me now. Okay. <laughs> but I well, enjoyed it. We have a little bit of Les Mis. And this is where Colin Wilkinson, very well-known Irish singer and actor, sings Bring Him Home. Wilkinson, who was once a Eurovision Song Contest entrant for Ireland when he was known as Colm C.T. Wilkinson, that had been very different. But how does an indie fan like you go for that? I just, I think I love the story. I love stories of, uh, and this might sound very dark, but like disadvantaged people in situations and how they can overcome things. That would be sort of the books, the literature that I'd be very much drawn to. And it was the music for Les Mis that really got me. Like, the songs are really, really beautiful. Now, it's been years since I've seen it, but you made me choose a stage one, so that's what I went with. <laughs> okay. You you read a lot. And more, Not as much as I should. I did a lot in my 20s and my early 30s, and I really need to be reading more, definitely, now. I do. So, favourite book or author you've gone for? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. You've read that. I imagine everybody has read that. And again... It's it's one of those books that I like I'm drawn to because it's I'm really drawn to North American stories that set are set you know, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and the sprawling kind of landscape. And same with Canadian stories. There's an author I love called Miriam Toes. A Complicated Kindness is a beautiful story as well. And it's all about kind of young, scrappy girls. And that's what I think maybe I identified with. Like a little scout is the narrator and the person that tells the story of To Kill a Mockingbird. And she's very much a young, scrappy little girl. But what is the... The main point of To Kill a Mockingbird is it was written from Harper Lee when she grew up in the 1930s in Alabama. And it's written, released in 1960, but it's about race relations. And it's about her, the main character, Atticus Finch, is a lawyer who decides to defend a black man who's been wrongly accused of a crime and all the fallout from all of that. And the big thing is that the children, as in Scout and her brother, Jeremy Jam, get to see how life isn't fair. And there are a lot of injustices in the world primarily what's happening to this one individual, Tom Robinson, in To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's a hard life lesson for them to learn. But they, children, aren't inherently racist. So they're struggling with understanding why this is happening. And their father is targeted for deciding to represent 
this man and taking on this case. It's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful book. And Harper Lee is a fascinating character because it was the only book she wrote and published until the year before she died in 2015. And she was really good friends with Truman Capote and Dill, the little boy, and the book is based on their relationship growing up together. And she traveled with Truman to write Cold Blood and research that story. And their story together is fascinating. Obviously, there's been movies written about them as well. And the 1962 version with Gregory Peck of To Kill a Mockingbird is a wonderful movie. I go back to that a good bit as well. I love it. We have from the audiobook an extract of To Kill a Mockingbird. The more we told Dill about the Radleys, the more he wanted to know. The longer he would stand hugging the light pole on the corner, and the more he would wonder. Wonder what he does in there, he would murmur. Looks like he'd just stick his head out the door. Jem said he goes out all right when it's pitch dark. Miss Stephanie Crawford said she woke up in the middle of the night one time and saw him looking straight through the window at her. Said his head was like a skull looking at her. Ain't you ever waked up at night and heard him, Dill? He walks like this. Jem slid his feet through the gravel. Why do you think Miss Rachel locks up so tight at night? I've seen his tracks in our backyard many a morning, and one night I heard him scratching on the back screen. But he was gone time Atticus got there. Wonder what he looks like, said Dill. Jem gave a reasonable description of Boo. Boo was about six and a half feet tall, judging from his tracks. He dined on raw squirrels and any cats he could catch. That's why his hands were bloodstained. If you ate an animal raw, you could never wash the blood off. There was a long, jagged scar that ran across his face. What teeth he had were yellow and rotten. His eyes popped and he drooled most of the time. Let's try to make him come out, said Dill. I'd like to see what he looks like. Jem said if Dill wanted to get himself killed, all he had to do was go up and knock on the front door. From To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Alison Curtis is with us for her Culture Club choices. So let's move to television. Um, just like we asked for first single and you gave us the first album. <laughs> uh, tell us about the television you used to watch when you were young growing up. One show that we watched a lot and I've gone back to watch recently with my daughter and it does stand the test of time is The Golden Girls and everyone loved it and they've got this unique position in, in TV history where all four main characters won a Golden Globe for their role in the show and it was so ahead of its time. Have you gone back to watch it or did you watch it at the time? I remember it vaguely. I remember Blanche and various <laughs> others. Yeah, I mean, her. I can remember it and it would have been sort of in and out, but I haven't watched it in recent times, no. So it is hilarious, but it was so ahead of its time because it was the first time a show allowed the actresses to actually be their age and they dealt with issues of ageism and how middle-aged women have certain health issues that they, you know, talk about or have certain life stages where, you know, they're divorced, they're still having their jobs, they still have a social life, they have a sex life. This idea that women in their 50s were doing this was very foreign to Hollywood. So that's why it really stood out. Sorry, were they in their 50s? You see, that shows you how young I must have been when I saw it. I thought they were older. Yeah, I know, (laughs) but it's the way they dress too. It's the way they dress. No, they were like 50s, early 60s filming it. And it was just, it dealt with a lot of LGBTQ plus issues as well. So I learned a lot through it when I was younger without really realising it because it was just entertaining and there's so many zippy one-liners and they're so funny and there's four it's four main characters my mother was had three sisters one of four and I felt like they all were represented in a golden girl so I think I felt akin to them that way I have an aunt that's literally like Rosen Island and people who watch Golden Girls will know what Rosen Island is like Well we have a scene from Golden Girls in which Blanche has just found out that she's unexpectedly pregnant Blanche who's the father? The father? Gee, I don't know. <laughs> well, you'd better figure it out. When was your fertile period? 
Oh, well, let's see. I'm nine weeks late. It would have been two weeks before that, so about 11 weeks ago. Nine weeks late, and you just realized that something is wrong? Yes, I kind of lost track. <laughs> well, I think you better get out your book and find out what you did that week. We know what she did. We don't know with who. <laughs> Uh, all the male pigs loved her. Oh, she was very beautiful. And she got pregnant, and we never knew who the father was. Oh, my God, Rose, what did you do on Father's Day? Here we go. Week of the seventh. Let's see. Who was it? Blanche. Oh, I don't know. But Blanche, who did you see? Well, that was a particularly active time for me. I, I was looking quite stunning. You know, I just had my teeth bonded and I was really irresistible. Oh, Blanche. A few people. How many is a few? Two? Well, three? Do we hear four? Well, that was more like a 10-day, two-week span. For me, that's a lifetime span. Betty White. But like women in their 50s didn't ha- have a sexual life in anywhere in movies or anywhere really. So I'm just so thinking though, that was 1980s, was it? It started in 85 and it went to 92. Okay, so that was pushing the boundaries out totally. a lot for television, mainstream American television at the time. And there was a trans character and there was actually a scene that was resurfaced around the time of George Floyd that was a conversation between John, uh, Don Cheadle and Rue McClanahan who played Blanche, who was from a very rich southern family. And he spoke to her about what it means to be an ally and that was in 1988-89 it was fan- like it's fantastic TV it's really good and from the modern era you love one that I loved and rewatched during lockdown it's so good Mad Men oh it's incredible and it's beautiful to look at the style but the thing with Mad Men that and I know you would have noticed this as well is it was always commended on its historical accuracy mm. like right down to the fridge magnets I remember those fridge magnets being in my aunt's house who you know was around at that time and I just love the story I find advertising fascinating I used to go to like a big film festival that was all about commercials like so I found everything was fascinating and I found quite I liked Peggy a lot and I liked Peggy a lot and I'm not saying we're completely paralleled but we're a little bit paralleled in that when I started here I was the PA to the then CEO. Radio was very male dominated when I started. It really was behind the scenes and in the mic and Peggy had to fight hard to get to where she was which was a senior copywriter by the end of Mad Men and I loved her story arc and I loved all the women in that. Even... Don, you know, Betty Draper, who is Don Draper's wife, like she seemed very one dimensional, but she really wasn't. And everybody loved Joan. Like she was an incredible character. Christina Hendricks played her. And it's so beautiful to look at. And the lines are so brilliant. It's, I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> I think exactly the same as you say. Look, to finish though, Barry Trezor, anything that you feel people should know more about. And you've gone for a TV series based on graphic novels. Yes. So Alice Oseman is a graphic novelist and she has a book series called Heartstopper. And it had a eight part series that went out on Netflix last year. And it's just a beautiful love story between two teenage boys. And what I loved about it is it didn't do the jumping off point of going, we need to explain to you what is happening and what, you know, gay means. Instead, it's just following a love story like you would any other teen rom-com that we've watched throughout the history of time. And I think it's a really important one for parents to watch with tweens. Let's hear a brief scene from Heartstopper. Honey. Tara, you're in the orchestra too? Yeah. I have literally no musical ability. Charlie tried to teach me the drums once and I am absolutely crap. (laughs) You and Charlie getting along well then? 
Uh, yeah. Actually, well, we're sort of going out. Are you? I mean, we haven't made it official or anything, but yeah. Please don't tell anyone, though. No, of course. It's funny how things stand out between us. What do you mean? I mean, when we were 13, I thought we were going to be boyfriend and girlfriend forever. <laughs> yeah, so did I. Oh, my God, do you know what we need to do? Double date. Us and Charlie, tomorrow night, before the concert, milkshakes. I like milkshakes. Good. <laughs> um, you're kind of the first people I've told about Charlie. Really? Yeah. And does it feel good to have told someone? Yeah. It really does. Heartstopper, which is the last choice, the buried treasure from Alison Curtis. You'll understand this. I'm out of time. I, I know. have to finish. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can hear Alison every Saturday and Sunday morning on the weekend breakfast here at Today FM. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.